Hey Loam listeners, this is Kate, the creative director of Loam. Before we dive into a new episode of Loam Listen with Amiria Freeman, I want to share with you all about the launch of our Patreon. As you all know, Loam is a small and heart-powered organization passionate about creating immersive, responsive, and regenerative media that sparks a culture shift. To sustain our work and to fully actualize our vision, we are humbly asking for support from our community to continue to compensate our creative contributors, produce Loam Listen, and expand our publishing branch. As a subscriber to our Patreon, your donation of just $4 a month, the cost of a cup of coffee, can help Loam show up stronger for our beautiful community. To learn more about our Patreon, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com loamlove. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com l-o-a-m love. Thank you again so much for being a part of this community. We're so grateful to be in conversation with you all. Hi there. I'm Amiria Freeman, and you're listening to Loam Listen. In her essay, That Transformative Dark Thing, self-described queer Black troublemaker and Black feminist love evangelist Alexis Pauling Gums asks, what do you believe in that keeps you breathing despite blatant violence and disrespect? What do you believe in more than the evidence of injustice? In response to that question, I believe in Black joy, pleasure, and rest, and building new worlds. I also believe deeply in conspiracy. The word conspiracy is a favorite of mine. It's derived from the Latin word conspirare, which literally means to breathe together. Breathing together. That's probably the thing I believe in most. Breathing together as in How can we fight for our collective survival by ensuring people and planet are cared for? And as in, how can we breathe together and be on one accord to decompose a world that no longer serves us? In this episode, I'll be speaking with E. N. West. Affectionately known as E, they proudly hail from the DC metropolitan area by way of Alexandria, Virginia. They graduated from the College of William & Mary with dual degrees in American Studies and Government. E deeply believes we are uninhibited when we know our power, and they are committed to co-creating a world where everyone intimately knows how powerful they are and directs that power toward collective liberation. They are many things, but at the heart of them all, they're a community organizer based in Seattle, Washington. E feels called to community organizing as both a vocation and way of life. They are also deeply committed to lifelong leadership formation. To those ends, they're currently building a Black queer feminist future at Surge Reproductive Justice, learning nonprofit leadership as a community impact fellow through RVC, organizing around faith, land, and equitable development with the Church Council of Greater Seattle and serving on the board of organizing with Got Green, a BIPOC-led environmental justice organization rooted in South Seattle. In their moments of play and rest, he enjoys reading social justice literature, 
listening to podcasts of all kinds, especially those featuring CutiePock, and being the queer jock of their own dreams through boxing, biking, and training for a 10K. In this conversation, Ian and I chat about what it means to be in conspiracy from our homes. We talk about how in a moment when many of us are feeling more isolated than ever, we can still find ways to connect, organize, mobilize, and invest in new ways of being in a relationship that allows us all to breathe together and in harmony. Oh my God, the time has come. E, welcome to Lone Listen. How are you doing? Well, first, thank you. And second, I'm good. I'm chilling today. Um, you know, I'm like, I'm just in my space. I woke up at like 1045, you know, um, which is not the norm. Um, and yeah, I don't even know. I've like got a lot done today, which was part of like what I wanted to do. So I'm feeling like productive in a nice way. Like there was no one breathing down my neck. It was all me. Yeah, and I'm just really excited to be in this conversation, honestly. Like you're one of my favorite people on earth to speak to, so. No, and likewise. And again, I'm just so excited to reconnect. So he and I, we went to undergrad together is how we first met. And I'm not going to mention the name of that specific <laughs> um, institution. Lovely gowns, beautiful gowns. But, you know, we've moved past it, onward and forward. Um, but I just remember being in so many classes with you and just being like, oh, my God, this person is just like so sermonic, so prophetic. Um, always doing amazing organizing work on campus, always finding ways to be in community, and also just like the looks they used to serve, even now to this day on Instagram, I'd be peeping up, just like everything, the entire package. Um, So I'm so excited to be speaking with you about what I kind of been thinking about, this idea of conspiracy. Um, so, so often when we think of that word, we typically think about activities that are considered to be like really like devious and disruptive, but I also love that word because, um, the root word means to breed together. And whenever I think about your work, your organizing work specifically, I always think about that word conspiracy and how it seems so appropriate. One, because... I think doing any sort of community organizing is automatically, inherently, in conversation with being subversive. I think if you're finding ways to radically change and shift the world that we're living in, there's already like a sense of like deviousness in that because you are actively confronting the world as is and being like, hold up, partner. I think we can do a little bit different, you know, throw a little cilantro on it, do something different what we have in this moment. Um, And then also, I literally love this idea that you are finding ways for all of us to, again, like breathe together, literally, but also like in a more like really beautiful, poetic, um, metaphorical sense, like how do we through organizing sort of become just like aligned, live on one accord, be together, be in really deep relationship. Mm -hmm. I say we, I mean like us within the human world, but then also like our more than human kin as well. How can people and planets sort of again breathe together, be in conspiracy? And I think this conversation is so needed right now. You know, we're in this moment where we all are experiencing quarantine. A lot of us are in isolation, um, but people like you, you're still finding ways for all of us to still be connected, still be in a relationship. 
um, because there's still work to be done despite a pandemic, despite and that stuff is the work. Um, so I'm so excited to be thinking about how do we still nurture relationships with others from our homes? And just like historically, you know, within your own life, within historical analogs, what kind of organizing has happened at home and how can we sort of draw out lessons from that? So I think there's so much to unpack in this conversation. So again, I'm so excited, but I think we should do some level setting. So just for the audience, like, who are you and what do you do? You know, this is actually a difficult question because I feel like whatever this comes up in like IRL in real life, right? I'm always like the most, like I'll be like, I do the most um, or I am the most or I do too much. Like it's always uh, about excess, (laughs) which is interesting. I've been actually trying to check myself on that. But all that to say, I mean, my name, um, I'm Ian West. Everyone just calls me E. Anyone listening to this podcast is a friend. So y'all can just call me E. My pronouns are they and them, or just my name, E. So I've gone through like my Zoom introduction. Okay, that's like how I introduce myself every single time. Um, And then I was actually thinking about, there's a word that I read one time. There's a person on Instagram who uh, is sort of a jack of all trades, trans mask person based in New York, um, and takes amazing like self-portraits and did this like multiple year self-portrait series where he would take photos of himself and just whatever, um, doing his job or like in his home or on the street. And it was supposed to sort of uh, trouble the narrative around trans masculinity. Anyway, I said all that to say, this person has a name that is very similar to the job that he does. And so when he named himself that people have asked him, like, why did you name yourself this name? Because most people don't have it. Um, And he's like, I named myself based on what I do. And so I was thinking a lot about that. It's called, I looked up like, what is that before I got on this call? Because I I love that concept. And it was like sticking in my head. And um, it's called Aptronym. Because like the apt, it's like what you're apt at or what you are apt in doing. Um, And so it's sort of when your name and your occupation slash situation are closely corresponding. Um, And so I feel like in some ways, when I think of like who I am and what I do, it's like that, even though my actual like government name or the name that I go by is, you know, a collection of letters. Like sometimes it feels like when you ask like who I am, I'm going to tell you what I do. Um, So in terms of like what I do, I just feel like it all falls under the umbrella of community organizing which is an overused word, almost to the point of it being trite at this point, because everybody, all the girls are an organizer these days, and that is fine. (laughs) I'm like, you know what? I'm not here to police that word. Like, it's fine. Um, All that to say, though, um, some of my work is directly community organizing, so I do some explicit community organizing around uh, faith land and equitable development in Seattle. Um, I also do some environmental justice organizing with a BIPOC-led organization and BIPOC-only organization for the most part called Got Green, um, which is based in South Seattle. Um, And I'm in the Climate Justice Committee and have been now almost three years, which is kind of wild. It's like very much my movement home. And then also I am a a communications and community engagement lead at Surge Reproductive Justice, which is also South Seattle-based, literally like next door to Got Green because Seattle is a small town. Um, and yeah, that's like what I do with my life. And those are, yeah, those are the things that come to mind. There's so much else, but I feel like in terms of like what is neatly packaged, I can like speak to very clearly. Those are like the three places I spend a lot of time. What I love about your portfolio is that it is so broad. Like, 
um, throughout the time that I've known you, you focus on so many different issues that are like connected, but also super distinct. So I'm so interested in like learning more about how you came to work on such a broad collection of issues. I think first I want to ask you, you did sort of mention this idea of community organizing being like a very broad idea that many people latch on to. So I would love to know for you, how do you, number one, define community organizing and how did you come to that work? I feel like I've never asked you that question. Like how did sort of the work find you and how did you find it? I love that question. Um, yeah, so I would say my own definition of community organizing, I think that organizing, it comes from, there's a lineage, right? So, you know, some of the girls would point to Saul Alinsky and the um, IAF as sort of the beginning. You could look at like the early labor movement. I mean, for me, I think anybody who comes from descendants of enslaved people, we have to look to, I mean, yeah, in terms of our history on this land, like that is where I'm seeing it for myself. Um, whether it was organizing to get the fuck off the plantation. Are we allowed to curse? I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Okay, go off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to get the fuck off the plantation. Or it was to organize for, to do better in the present circumstance because there wasn't a way out um, without death. Um, or it was, you know, moving along through history and it's like, okay, now we're free, quote unquote, but like the white supremacist violence has just evolved into something arguably in some ways worse depending on where you were in the country and so organizing around well how are we going to live like what does it look like to be nominally free and then still in like bondage but to know better than like to know better than these circumstances being acceptable so all of that for me is sort of like where the lineage of organizing comes from and then you come into of course like the civil rights movement black movement and then for me because I'm very much situated in environmental justice and, and work around land um, environmental obviously environmental justice has been going on since indigenous people set foot on the ground and, and an unjust thing was done that tore the relationship between humans and in things that are greater than human and the earth all that to say in terms of where we kind of like put the pen in it and sort of when it's like documented history that comes from North Carolina. Um, and actually, it comes from a part of North Carolina that my ancestors are from, which is interesting. Yeah, because I only learned that uh, about three years ago um, when I went to that land. And then that was the first time I'd ever been to it. It's my father's side, his extended side, and then learned all this history. And then I started like reading like from books and like talking to organizers. They're like, oh, this is the environmental justice, like organizing history. And I was like, hold on, where is it at on the map? And then they like pointed to like Warren County, North Carolina. And I was like, I'm screaming because that's like where we're from um, and still are to some degree. So anyway, I guess that kind of leads into like, how did I come into like this lineage of organizing and you know it did happen at one could say a plantation of sorts um, <laughs> the undergrad institution from which we came um keeps the head down yeah but i mean honestly like it it was an oppressive place um in a lot of ways like historically and very much in the present day even now oh my god and it's been years since we've been out but while I was there, um, I came in a bit lost in the sauce. I grew up, you know, relatively like conservative in a way. Um, like my parents voted blue, which means nothing to me now, but so not conservative, but I was conservative. Like if you ask me about different social issues, my responses were very much in line with what the GOP was spitting. And so 
Um, I came to school and would just say wild out of pocket things, truly. And <laughs> I know we all were, so I feel less bad about it. I have much grace for me at 18 years and 19 years old. But while I was there, a lot of people did give me a lot of grace and also spent a lot of time and energy trying to make me into a better and thank God more well-read human. And from there, I just got an invitation from someone who's still a friend today to participate in like actually a pretty subversive like um, nighttime it was like a midnight action. And it was pretty like low stakes looking back at it now. Um, it was on campus. We were just like putting up some posters on trees all around the um, old part of the campus, which was very much a central area for students and faculty. And anyway, they invited me and it was like all these cool queer people. And I was like just coming into my own, like definitely not cool, but very much queer identity. Um, and I was like, well, I have to say yes to these folks, even though I had no idea what they were going to do. And we just like ran around in the middle of the night with like staplers and like high hopes, I suppose. And that was sort of the entry. And then from there, like I kind of got the bug and of course was like actively reading and like in school. So, you know, like hopefully learning something every now and again um, outside of just reading my own books. And yeah, from there, I think it was the relationships that kept me in it. But that was sort of the initial um, entry point. No, I absolutely love all of that. And I think I just want to tease out one thing that really struck me. I really love how when you were sort of talking about the lineage of community organizing, you did situate enslaved people within that. And I think for me, that's so crucial because when we think about sort of like this idea of community organizing, so often many of us often think about the civil rights movement as being the pinnacle of that idea. And we sort of think of that as being like its own unique um, distinct event in its own distinct unique just like historical moment but the reality has been that moment has been a moment that's been like expanding for like centuries like black folks have always been um in their own ways a part of that struggle for like liberation a part of that struggle for like collapsing the plantation collapsing racial capitalism like we're still engaging and still a part of that lineage. So I really love this idea that like um, this work that you're doing can't really be contained to like one historical moment. Like it's always been a part, um, honestly, a part of the history of America. Like history of America is one of community organizing. Um, now, depending on what the goal of the organizing was, you know, cause I feel like, you know, in a way like colonizers, you know, there's sort of like an argument to be made about them doing their own community organizing, sort of like build the project of American, right. American imperialism. So depending on what lineage you're looking at, the outcomes can be sort of problematic. Um, but I sort of love this really expansive idea of community organizing. And thank you for that walkthrough about how you came to this work. And now I'm so curious about for you, what is your vision when it comes to community organizing? When you're thinking about what's on the horizon, when you're thinking about what's possible, um, going back to this idea of conspiracy, um, for you, what is your vision of how that conspiracy can manifest? Like for you, you mentioned relationships being the thing that kept you, that has kept you in this work. What kinds of relationships do you see being made possible right now that will become normalized in the future? Ooh, that's so good. And there's so many parts to that. I mean, honestly, when I was thinking about this earlier, it made me think of this game that I used to play as a child. Um, what was it? Like Mousetrap, I think, where you would like set up the different pieces and then you would like roll the little thing, right? And they had to like all go together or the whole thing just kind of like fell apart. And that was the goal of the game, right? 
And I was just thinking about how ideally, like when I, it wouldn't be a trap, let's make that clear. But in terms of when I think about society looking different, it's that the things that like each piece that we held in accordance to our gifts and talents and joys would work together. Like it, it really isn't that deep. And I feel like sometimes I get very frustrated with the world as it is because I wake up every day being like, it just doesn't have to be this hard. Like we've made it so complicated, so difficult, so like separate and it just doesn't have to be that way. So I guess one of the things I think about is just, I mean, obviously being truly in right relationship with the land, which would mean that we'd be in right relationship with one another. Um, because that would mean that we are, we're all co-owners of the land and if we're bringing equity into this as we should, then folks who have been hoarding the resources, hoarding the literal landscape would, you know, at least for a significant period of time would not, in my vision of the world, be owners of that land anymore. Um, in fact, there really wouldn't be owners of any land. There would be stewards of land. And that would be like a, a crucial distinction that we'd all have to go through within ourselves and then on a larger systemic societal level. I also just think about, I mean, there'd be so much divestment. I sometimes do try to think of a world without money. I like really love the concept of time banking and like have followed a lot of different local movements that are doing that around the country in their own way. But it is difficult sometimes to get that far ahead where we have not only released the physical aspect of money and of course all the systems that feed into that but also just like uh how do i say like the the bank lord in our heart like the corporate overlord <laughs> the capitalist within <laughs> like how do we get to that so anyway all this to say at least in sort of the nearer future maybe in the next like generation 20 years there would be a divestment, of course, from like all of these systems of oppression and just degradation. Um, and then there'd be a reinvestment into community. And I, I often think of the world in, in sort of like small neighborhoods. So, you know, I've spent a lot of my time in between suburbs and then cities. I've not spent a lot of time, um, meaningful time in rural areas. That said, I do think that there's something really beautiful about a small town and about knowing the people around you. Um, but then also there's something beautiful about having access to many other small towns. And I think part of that, like Seattle has sort of influenced this because it is very much like there are a bunch of small towns everywhere. There just happens to be like major roads that connect them. It feels like a lot of the time. Um, and some, some of that is literally because of how the city came into being. But all that to say, I do envision the world is getting smaller. I, yeah, I do, especially as we have urbanized, and I'm really speaking from an American point of view right now, and I'm only going to speak to what I know, so I just want to acknowledge that, but um, yeah, I just see it, I just see it shrinking down, and us all being co-stewards of the spaces that we create, and those things being done collectively, um, and so yes, it can come from you, but you are also in conversation with those around you, like, is this needed? what is the need that it is responding to or even if it's not needed like is it wanted you know and if it's not like okay well maybe you want it so you can do it from wherever you know you are at but it doesn't have to be something that everyone else is forced to take in just because like you happen to be a person who has the drive or whatever would be in this society to do it um so i just think about that a lot and really i, I just think about like all of us feeling a deep sense of moral obligation to care for each other and for what we've been given like the world is very beautiful even when it's ugly it's like sometimes it's irritating i'm like wow everything sucks and like this rainbow is going off right now like i'm like irritated at you i'm trying to be upset and you look so good so i feel like <laughs> for the world i'm seeing like 
people would see, you know, let's say that somebody like had made a mess on the ground and like, we don't know the reasons for that, but whatever it was, like, instead of us walking by, cause we're like, well, it's somebody else's job to do that, like to deal with that. We would be like, you know what? That person was probably having a terrible day to have left this here. So you know what? Let me just go ahead and like do what I need to do to collect it and put it in the appropriate receptacle where it'll be used to like generate something else that's very good for us and then can constantly be reused. You know what I mean? Um, that is how I think of it. I think our systems, we would have systems because we're human and we do organize ourselves. Like I don't believe that people often are like, well, we just like, everyone's just going to run around and do what they want. And I'm like, I just have not seen very many instances in history where for long periods of time that has happened and been sustainable. But all that to say, I think that all of these massive systems that we have would become much, much smaller. So I think like, you know, if we're thinking about like the medical industrial complex, like all the industrial complex is gone because we've gotten rid of like industry in that way. Um, but I do think about like, okay, there's a lot more home births. Okay, so that means in your neighborhood, there might be like a center that trains doulas for that particular neighborhood so that can respond to the very specific demographics and demographic needs of that place. So I just feel like everything becomes very place-based and very interconnected in a way where, you know, yeah, it does feel a bit small town in my head, but I'm like, I, I also live for a small town. So people do not live for that. And that is a real thing. I think if I'd grown up in one, I might feel different, but being in like a small town in a city currently in a few different spaces that are small towns within cities, I love it. And I'm like, I think that this is a better way of doing things. Mm, no, what I love about that is that it's not far off, right? Like these ideas of like being local, being clear, investing in community investing in deep empathy investing in like self-sufficiently investing in like circular economies investing in like thinking about care currency versus like fiscal like modern like those things um have been modeled again and again and i think that's what i love about asking these types of questions because you sort of realize like oh like i have seen real models for this and it just like really like makes me like optimistic sometimes that when we think about like these larger like ideals of like how the world can be it's kind of like so often I think people feel like oh if we want to get to like you know a place of complete prison abolition you know we're starting here and that world is on the other side and I'm kind of like I think more so than not we have like one foot in this world and one foot in the other world like I think we're really especially right now in a place where like we're really straddling that line and it really is about are we going to have a deep enough commitment to take that other foot and put it into um the site of like where this other greater more ideal world is and yeah I really love that like everything you said it's like I can in my head think about so many different examples, both historically and now that really speak to what you just um, spoke about. And I'm especially thinking about Fannie Lou Hamer, like who mm-hmm. you know, is like this amazing voting rights activist, but who also started this amazing like farm cooperative that was like built on all of these tenants that you just like espoused and gave to us. And with that said, I'm really curious to know how has your vision of conspiracy shown up in your life recently? And I kind of love this thing that you, you tweeted. Um, it was just sort of like a random occurrence that happened. And I'm just going to read it. And you said, 
Not me running to the Black Owned Beauty Supply for a do-rag and coming out covered in shea butter that auntie made me rub all over my skin, a certain around the inherent divinity of Black people and calculations on how many billions were owed by the feds. And I really love it. I think it just like, I don't know, like speaks to just kind of the relationships that we could be having like all the time that we can have on a very broad scale. Um, so I want to know how your vision of conspiracy has shown up, especially now amid quarantine. Um, and yeah, how has that impacted you? Knowing that like maybe we are sort of straddling those two worlds and we're not just deeply rooted in one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, before I get into this, it makes me think of, and I'm gonna not say it exactly, but I know that it's attributed to, I believe it's attributed to Angela Davis, but it's like having to, Um, live out the world that we want to see all the time like that is what I think it's like that's what being revolutionary is or there's something somehow tied to that but I think about that a lot because it's very difficult but at the same time I feel like we are blessed as uh, queer trans like black indigenous and people of color because the world has kind of made it so that we low-key are forced to do that but then we also like do it anyway like it's inherent and yet we also are forced to do it. And so I feel like it's easier sometimes to practice liberation because it's already right there. It's always been there. Um, that said though, in terms of conspiracy, I mean, I love, I did not know the root, even though when you said it, I was like, oh, sort of breaking it down in my head like you did as a kid. And I was like, oh, that does make sense. Like, yeah, breathing together. And I feel like there's been definitely two instances. One is pretty light. The other one is um, light as well. I mean, it was joyful, but is um, directly tied to organizing. Um, In terms of just like literally breathing together and and specifically breathing with the land and like the environment. I've taken up hiking, um, which I never thought I would do. I never thought I would be, as they would say, you know, that girl. (laughs) But I've purchased some Tevas and... (laughs) life has changed <laughs> I love it it's so nice and in like the Pacific Northwest where I'm based it it's kind of if you're able to get to the trails it really does like you're missing a big part of what it's like out here if you've chosen not to go if you're able to go um so now that I'm like I love to I'm like kind of an athletic person um I love being outdoors and here is like this beautiful landscape that we just have so much access to. So I would say like literally just in like breathing, like before the smoke came, like just beautiful, like healthy, clean air, um, being surrounded by just other people, yes, uh, cause the trails are a little busy, but like, <laughs> so you know, we got the mask on at some points for sure. Um, but like, literally, we are breathing together, right? Like, we are exerting all this energy to like get to this common goal, experience this beautiful thing or multiple beautiful things, right? And then come back down and get home safely. And so, uh, that was like one of the first things I thought about when you said like conspiracy, even though it's not directly tied to the sort of like connotation that that word has. Um, I would also say more directly tied to the connotation. I did some organizing that was really different than the organizing I've been doing for some time um, over the summer um, in July and August. Just a bunch of friends that are from my movement home were like, hey, look, there's been a lot of these, um, a lot of protests at the intersection, of course, of Black Lives Matter and something else. 
but we haven't really seen one in Seattle, which is kind of weird, actually, now that I'm looking at it, like, that was at the intersection of environmental injustice slash environmental justice and Black Lives Matter. And it's like for all the like Sierra Club girls, the 350s, not to call anybody out, just to say that like these uh, organizations have massive presences in this like notoriously like very green friendly strongholds here um, city and <laughs> region. Like there wasn't, there really wasn't um, an explicit action that was speaking to that intersection. And it's wild because there's actively environmental injustice happening here, like in the midst of all of this, right? Um, that's compounded by this pandemic moment that we're in. And then was like quadruply compounded when the smoke came. And so anyway, we did this action before the smoke, but it was like right on the tail before we entered into fire season. And just all that organizing space, um, we organized it until the day of, we organized all of it um, online via Zoom, Slack, which I hate, um, and Signal. I just wanna say that for the record, I don't like Slack, I think it's bad. Um, and you can quote me on that. And yeah, <laughs> and Signal, and a little bit of text. And it just, oh, and then I guess Instagram when it came time for promo. And it was just like such a generative, deeply intentional, like almost intentional to the point of, um, of slowing us down, which is good. Like we did move slowly, way more slowly than I've ever moved in planning specifically a protest. I feel like they always kind of come together like in a couple of days and you're like, what is happening even as it's happening? Um, but this time it was just the people who had kind of gathered us all together are just just so deeply intentional and like very values oriented people that I'm glad to call comrades and friends and then the people therefore that they brought into this like larger collective that we never even officially named um because it just didn't feel necessary it was like we've all come in from our various corners as like folks of color a lot of us queer and trans like who care about the environment and care about our communities and like that's what we're here to do is like to raise that up and us having like a brand is like not essential to this and anyway, doing that together, I just saw people like lean into leadership. I saw people, um, people just really root themselves in places that they already like have such a strong like, talent and gift in showing up in organizing space. Like I know personally, I tend to fall into a certain like, honestly kind of like charismatic leader, like always the speaker at the event, always like kind of the face of things. And I was like, this time, no, I'm not doing that because I need to learn something different. Um, and in this space, I felt it was really easy to just assert that and everyone be like, okay, cool. So you're gonna like do this other thing. And then like, even when people were like, hey, wanna do this thing that you always do? I was like, I'm not doing that. Like, and they were like, okay, cool. Like, we're gonna ask somebody else. So it's just like that, I feel like was, it was just was very inspirational to me within this like small, this microcosm of a larger world that is like organizing space, that's like movement space, right? But then also just in the ways that the actual action happened, like I was working security and it was so interesting because like nothing, there were like some, nothing actually happened, but there were some different um, less than friendly characters who were on like the perimeters of our action of a couple hundred people. And, you know, folks in the community would like identify us because we like were, you know, low key, but identifiable. And they're like, hey, this person is making me feel uncomfortable. And you know, the person was like white man behaving distractingly. So it's like in a group of folks of color who are trying to learn something and trying to like enjoy the space. And so anyway, all that to say like, instead of, you know, like, I don't know, just tossing him out or whatever, 
Like we did, we did still try to hold him in grace, but also we like had our people on him. It was like, this man is not gonna like run around here, make people feel uncomfortable. And there were some other folks and they may have been undercover cops. They kind of had that vibe, but all that to say, like we always like had eyes on him. We always had multiple people stationed strategically to, you know, maintain that perimeter as much as we could but it wasn't about like you absolutely can't be in here like your humanity is not valuable to us it was you know other folks are feeling like whatever you're trying to give off and it's like disrupting their experience so how can we like make everyone you know a part of this space and ultimately the full that person and then a couple other folks who were falling to that camp ended up just like leaving um so anyway as we were like debriefing this and I, I point out that specifically it really made me think I mean like in Seattle we've been like going up about defunding the police which is like still very much a negotiation at this very moment uh, around the country obviously that is true um, the same conversations have been happening the same movements and it's so hard to imagine sometimes even for those of us who like deeply believe in it because you don't see it right like not in ways where you can point out like the cops are bad I have like a litany of offenses, it's sometimes hard to point at community care around security or however we want to frame it. Safety is good. I have a litany of positive experiences. Like it's like maybe I've had a couple, but it's not, that's not even that much for a lot of people. And I feel like in this particular moment, here we were, you know, conspiratorially, if you want to go with that, like working together to, yeah, challenge the state to like bring this history of environmental injustice and environmental justice, both sides to this space, to folks who were in the loop and some who were not. And then to also disrupt business as usual and also challenge like, and even challenge folks in that very moment to behave differently, to not listen to the cop in your head, even as you're doing a job that we would typically ascribe for cops, if that makes sense. So yeah, yeah, I feel like that, that whole sort of movement moment the planning of it, the actual action, and even the debrief sense. And I've just like taken a hiatus from organizing for this month because that took a lot out of me um, to be so involved in that and other efforts in the midst of it, like has just taught me a lot about what our movement spaces can look like and therefore what our larger world can look like. First and foremost, I just want to say that once you get the Tevas in any sort of situation, never <laughs> going back. That is commitment. That is you're in it, in it. Um, but no, I absolutely love this moment, sort of being an all-encompassing, holistic, just like example of how again we can live out the worlds that we need, that we want in the moment. Um, it actively is a choice to constantly embody um, that ideal and that idea that we have in our head. Um, and it reminds me of a quote by Miriam Kaba, where I think she says something along the lines of that hope is a discipline and. Mm -hmm. Discipline. All this requires such rigorous, committed, dedicated practice. And you have to keep doing it, have to keep doing it, have to keep doing it. Because one day you're going to wake up and be like, oh, 
this is the thing, like the thing that I was doing, it is the thing, it is the way that we're living. And as you're speaking about just that very specific case study and example, one thing that I latched onto was this idea of like slowness, how organizing from home really forced you and your cohort and collective to really slow down. And I want to tie all this back to the idea of home, because all of this took place partially in your homes, and I'm assuming. And so I'm really interested in learning more about this specific example and just like other examples that are taking place in this moment. Um, what has organizing at home taught you about how we continue struggling towards liberation, towards greater revolution, all of that? Yeah, I really want to know, like, what have you drawn out? What have been those lessons? And also, how has organizing at home um, what has that experience taught you about relationship building and how we connect to each other? Because again, I'm just so interested that like you're doing work that's so deeply based on relationships in a moment when if we're in close proximity, if we're actively communing, that's powerful, but also potentially dangerous. And so it's almost better to be in isolation. So I'm just like so fascinated by like in this moment of deep isolation, you're still finding ways to be connected. Um, so yeah, like what lessons have you learned about community, community organizing at home? And also what has this moment of quarantine taught you about how we relate to each other? It's taught me a lot of things. I would say one of the big things, you know, as someone who's very able-bodied and neurotypical, I admit that I also, I, like many of us, just did not give disability justice as much time as it deserves. Um, and folks who are disabled, I was not taking into account the many different needs that people have and that prevent them from being able to access movement space, but frankly, any kind of physical space. And so one thing that obviously this entire moment, you know, even the fact that we're using Zoom to do this speaks to some of like the strides I think we've made as a society, but this is folks that, this is, this is something that disabled folks have been saying for ages and have been not listened to. <laughs> so I also want to acknowledge that, um, that we, yeah, our movement space has to become more accessible. Like, not just because, like, some of the most brilliant people that have ever organized and that are currently organizers also happen to be disabled, but because, like, we're not going to get free if all of us aren't in. Like, if it's only those of us who can, like, run and jump or who, you know, can show up in a way that is easily able to be read by others in terms of social cues, like, we're not going to get there. Um, and I think that that was something that like, yeah, I could say it before, right? Because it felt like a nice thing to say. But to be really honest, I don't think I had internalized it. And I think I'm still internalizing it because I have to also believe that for people that I don't like, that, that are like not people that I want to key with. But the world that we're going to build and that we are building, it, it includes people that we may not want to key with every day, but like they still deserve to be there. Like, so I think that that's a big thing that this has taught me. And it, it showed me a lot of, particularly this organizing moment I just uplifted, like taught me a lot of the different ways that we can bring people in. Um, we had different like pods within our larger collective. And one of them was the care pod. And then we also had a logistics pod. And between those two, um, they really, and also I would say program as well, like those three kind of pods specifically were super intentional, like having so many different types of access accessibility of services in terms of like having ASL, streaming it for multiple different 
um, sites so that people, even if they weren't there in person, could still have access to this moment, even down to like where we actually had the event. We were like, okay, we want our folks to be there. So what does that look like? We had um, interpretation in Spanish. Like it was, you know, on so many levels of access and like that was just a core value for this organizing moment. And I feel like it has really taught me on the lines of like language accessibility, physical accessibility, even like, uh, I guess, electronic or I suppose it'd be like online accessibility, like all of these things. Um, and in, in addition to just like accessibility period, like having like chairs there so that people, if they came in a wheelchair would have a place that was comfortable to sit at a march that turned into a rally, or at a rally that turned into a march, excuse me. Like all of those things are not things that I had like experienced all in one space until we did this particular action. And so I think that was something that I'm definitely carrying over like actively into my like day job work. And that's something that I got from that space. I would also say though, you know, our summer is very fleeting out here. Um, I know some people in this country get all kinds of months of summer. We really get like after the 4th of July to like maybe the first week of September. Although I think that that is going away. <laughs> right, it's like terrible. Um, yeah. But the summer you get is the most beautiful summer I think I know I've ever experienced in the world. So, you know, like, is it worth it? It's worth it. But at the same time, it is super, super short. And like, with the smoke now being a thing because of the fires and that being a seasonal occurrence, like, I think that summer is going to be even shorter. We're not even going to get that September anymore. All that to say... I think that because we were spending so much time, like, you know, we're working all day and like I'm privileged enough to like have jobs where I don't have to be an essential worker and go in person. I do all my work, you know, in front of two screens and well, three, I guess, if you help the phone all day, every day. Um, you know, and then we had our Zoom meetings afterward. And then of course there's like the meeting after the meeting, like as anyone who's ever organized anything knows happens, like you end up not going outside. Um, and even though our summer days are super long, especially in that July and early August, like I would just be, it would be a beautiful day. I would like see the weather report and be like, I have like 30 minutes to maybe experience this. And that's if I cut my lunch short, like, which I don't believe in doing. So it was just like, I, I learned like prioritize going outside, like prioritize getting the fresh air while you have it. Yeah. Prioritize seeing something different than your own face on a zoom or, you know, someone else's face or through a screen, just like seeing a random person that you may not know outside, it just does something. And suddenly all these things that seem to be piling up when you're taking on all of this, especially with organizing when you're juggling so many balls at once, it feels so much more possible as soon as you've like removed yourself from the environment you're in day in, day out. And I think there's something so valuable about being able to come home and be like, I'm coming home. Like, cause I've left, you know? So I think that that, that was something that I definitely learned, definitely learned from this. I would also say just like boundaries, and we briefly talked about this when we were like having a chit chat before we started recording, but yeah, just having like your hours of operations, like, you know, like because you're, like, you're, you're so accessible um, in this moment because home for a lot of us is our workplace now, very much so. Like it feels sometimes like someone can hit you up at some ungodly time of night and you do have to respond because they're like, well, we know you ain't out. So you go and respond. Like that's sort of the, like, <laughs> the thing that's implied. And I'm like, no, actually. Like for me, whether it's like for organizing stuff, so like stuff that's like off the clock, because, you know, even though I do organize, it's one of my jobs, like stuff that's not that kind of organizing, like 
I'm not going to answer. Once it gets to about 8.30, like once I'm like basically eating my dinner, I'm not answering the phone in, like while I'm eating my dinner. Like, especially not about something that requires actual thought. Like, mm-mm, definitely not. Um, I'm not answering calls, like phone calls about strategy after 9 p.m. Like, unless we're like literally up to the day of the action or it's something that like truly requires, like only you can solve this type thing. Um, I just feel like you have to, and you have to name that for yourself so then you can name it for others. Because of course, one, if you name it for others, even if you're just naming it for yourself, if that makes sense, if you're in a space saying like, don't hit me up after this time, then that might spark in them like, oh, I need to have my own little hours of operation. Because like, I'm also on phone calls and Zoom calls till 11 p.m. at night on a Tuesday, like I don't have another job. So it's like, yeah. I feel like that is something that I've like learned and I've like reset this fall very much so because I want to like still enjoy making the new world if that makes sense um but I'm like I have to ground myself and so much of the time with organizing just because it like is so all-encompassing it is difficult sometimes to find your grounding even in the best case scenario which I would really characterize this organizing moment in um the summer as a best case scenario so yeah I would say that those things are important. And also um, clear communication. I mean, a lot of this really just sounds like entering a polyamorous relationship, which it kind of is. Um, so that's also about a new thought. You know, Instagram definitely taught me that and I love that because it's true. But yeah, just clear lines of communication, you know, letting people know what you are doing, what you're not doing, making sure everything is accounted for, which I know definitely lends itself to certain types of people. I know earth signs are going to love that, for instance, as, you know, a Taurus, a triple Taurus myself. But <laughs> all that to say, it's important. So and I think it's one of those things where even on the most basic building block, right, of organizing is the one-to-one, -one, like, is the conversation between two people, and so you are actively, once again, modeling the world that you are trying to build in the process on a larger scale of modeling the world that you're trying to build, and then on a process, right, it just all builds on itself, so, like, when you do uh, take into account these basic things, you're, like, practicing, like, for what we're trying to do, and ultimately, like, what we are doing, right, so, yeah. Well, I just want to say you mentioned just, like, clear and I think all the water signs just like exited out of this podcast. I think all the Scorpio just like, ooh, well, this is my cue to leave. <laughs> Even for the sake of revolution. Um, but no, I really love this idea of like access and like multiple ways access in terms of like, do people have access to me and like setting boundaries for like what that looks like i think i've been so inspired by people colleagues that i know who have been like i'm setting out of often messages for both my professional life and my personal life um and i also love access in terms of is this moment now and beyond um inclusive of everyone so i really love the idea of like accessibility in like multiple different ways and honestly i'm standing right now because you sort of mentioned something that like has been so impactful for me, just thinking about this work in terms of like a fractal model where like everything that's happening on a micro scale blooms out and sort of has resonance on a macro scale. And I think I wanna kind of end 
there, sort of thinking about, you know, we've been sort of talking about the macro, like community organizing conspiracy and like a broader collective societal sense. And I really want to bring it back down to you as an individual and your experiences. Um, And one thing that like I absolutely adore about you is that like you're constantly evolving not only in your thoughts and like ideologies but again like physically as a person just like so since I've known you so many hairstyles so many aesthetic moments and they've all been iconic um and I think there's something to be said about people who are so bold and audacious when it comes to their own just like physical aesthetic personal growth and evolution I think that does have resonance for like how they live their lives and how they have a deep commitment to not only on a micro scale being really curious about what's next on the horizon but then also within their lives um they're also really actively thinking about beyond me how can the world also shift and evolve and i just want to know more about sort of how do you see those two things being conversation with each other as you have evolved as a person how is that sort of mapped over your community organizing work and in this moment how can we all as we spend more time at home tap into some of that energy that you have where like I too can be a little bit more bold and audacious when it comes to I want to try like a new haircut and a new style or maybe I just want to be more deeply embodied and like do more hiking and your self-described queer jocks like how can um, myself and you know the other girls out here just like really internalize and really practice that deep sense of embodiment um, I feel like that has that can be so powerful in this moment if we're all more embodied if we're all more invested in like how we can evolve I think we can sort of think through and sort of say like oh like everything else can evolve as well mm-hmm. honestly this is gonna sound really weird but it's, I promise it'll make sense um, so I recently watched this HBO documentary about Jane Fonda. And, okay, I know, I know, it's like, where's this going? But, okay, so, you know, Miss Jane has been, you know, contrary to what the girls on Twitter sometimes would like to believe, has actually been in this, like, truly out here organizing since she was, like, in her prime. And mind you, she's, I want to say, in her 80s now. So this has been a minute, right? Like, she was all in when it came to the war, uh, the war in Vietnam. Then after that, doing, like, smaller-level community organizing things because she um, was in a relationship with someone who was part of sort of a what I think of as a precursor to DSA, uh, the Democratic Socialist of America. Um, anyway, all that to say... And something that was really interesting about this documentary and like just about watching her life and honestly the life, the lives of so many people who are OGs in the game. I also think about Angela Davis in a very similar way. Um, someone else who has done this, like they, so the like Jane Fonda you saw when she first started talking about the Vietnam war, the Angela Davis you saw when she was like in court, right? on some like trumped up charges. They are not, those are not the same people that we are interacting with today. Now there are some through lines in terms of their values, in terms of the communities that they care about and the things that like get uh, that sort of like stoke the fire for them. Like those things have carried, but in terms of like everything else, I really feel like it seems that they are, they've really evolved. And if you like track it over time, even like down to decades or specific like periods of years, you can see that evolution happening. Um, I'm also reading a lot of Grace Lee Boggs right now and, and her husband, Jimmy Boggs, and I know just like truly 
inspirational. Although this book at the end, they kind of be going off for a while. So I'm like, okay, y'all, you need to wrap it up. <laughs> but all that to say, they also like, you know, Gracie Boggs lived to be like a hundred years old and was not the same Gracie Boggs that the girls were messing with back in like the fifties, right? When she got her PhD. So it's like all this to say, I think for me, there has been a direct line with coming into myself and I would say myself because at this point I'm like on iteration like number five of me um I like I do count them and there's like half points too there was like 4.5 which was like before the hiking now we're into like fully assimilated p-and-dub which is definitely like e number five um and anyway but on a serious note like yeah because I feel like a lot of it was you know you come um out of whatever home environment did shape you and it has shaped you so that is a version of you but also it's not a version of you right because i think very few of us and maybe if i'm wrong then please correct me but i feel like a lot of people don't come from homes where like all parts of you are nurtured to the degree that you probably would have wished them to be and that's like not saying it was a horrific home environment or like as deeply traumatic as some that might come to mind but it's still like its own its own challenge and i feel like for me that was definitely true um, as I've alluded to earlier with like, you know, I was out here like reading like Ayn Rand, you know, and thinking that that was like good ideology, a mess. Um, anyway, all that to say, like, but as each like year went on, and I think your 20s do lend themselves to this, but in addition to like the, the communities that were around me changing because like I was changing and then therefore like the things I wanted for my life and then therefore wanted for the world were changing, like all of that was like hand in hand with like aesthetic choices. Cause I felt the closer I felt to my own freedom, the more I felt like I needed to show it. And it wasn't even so much of a conscious thought. I feel like so much of this now I can look back and be like, that was what was happening. But at the time it was like the things that I would never even have dared to entertain as like aesthetic choices. Like th they felt like what I needed to do once I got to a certain point in my life. And like once certain uh, new realities were exposed to me. So I feel like now, like I'm very much in my like comfortable dad like moment, but that's always who I've been. <laughs> like I just couldn't be a comfortable dad when I was like, you know, in Southern Virginia and still having to see my parents like every few months, right? Cause they were not feeling Southern dad or uh, not Southern dad, Lord have mercy, but comfortable dad, <laughs> let's be clear. Um, but yeah, but now being out here and like having some distance and feeling more settled and just comfortable with myself and feeling that I have a lot less, a lot to prove and also to prove it to me, not to prove it to anyone else. Like I can just like wear whatever I want, like go in like sandals and tivas and like some shorts or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Wear overalls every day, giving you like farmer, a farmer moment. Cause honestly, one day I would like to have a real farmer moment. So like we're manifesting, okay. As part of this aesthetic. Um, so I feel like that's definitely part of it. And I think another part of it too is like, I mean, clothes carry so much significance. And I just think about clothes, hair, obviously, especially for black people, like hair is like the thing too, but I think that as I've tried to simplify my life, I needed less hair. I felt like my hair was carrying too much. Um, and it also, it takes a long time to, it takes a certain amount of energy and care to want your hair to look certain ways once it gets to a certain length. And I was like, let me like really do like a self audit. Like, do you have it in you to really do this hair like will require of you, like what you would actually want the world to see? And I was like, no. So I was like, okay, we're gonna simplify then. Like we're gonna have a simple life here and just shave it off and it just feels like right now that's the moment but i feel like you know i can feel that there's going to be a shift soon 
And I'm like, okay, then maybe that'll be the time when my heart's like, it's time to like take care of this hair and like do whatever will come next. So yeah, I think that that's some of it too. Um, and also just like the environment around you, I think is a huge part of it, right? Like um, <laughs> in watching the Jane Fonda documentary, I was commenting on my partner. I was like, I feel so inspired by this. I feel like we need to bring fashion back to organizing. Like I can't speak to the other parts of the country right now. I know there's some like enclaves of organizing where the, the girls are fashionable. I'm thinking about BYP 100 right now. Like they be out here like truly like threaded, like, ooh, fire. But like some of, I know out here in the, in the P&W, we do lean on the comfy aesthetic. You know, we do lean on the all black all the time. And it's like, okay, you know, I'm seeing something in the aesthetic choices that were strategic, which I think is important of the 60s and 70s specifically, where I'm like, okay, like, people saw that you had the Afro, they saw that you had, you know, um, maybe it was the long hair, depending on like what your texture was. Like you had a certain type, like the pins you were wearing on your thing, or maybe you were wearing all black cause you were a Panther and that meant something. So I'm like, okay, what would it mean for our moment? Like in the enclaves that I'm in to like, for our look to mean something and for people to see that look and be like, oh, I know what that means. And I want to be a part of it cause it's so fly. Anyway, these are some thoughts I've been sitting with since watching this documentary a week ago. Um, all that to say, yeah, I feel like in terms of just like the larger shift question though, about like the, yeah, the world and how like you shifting shifts that. Yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel like, hmm, I feel, you know, who's a well women that's like, we can take multitudes or whatever. And it's, it's true. I feel like, I don't know how cis people feel about this. I know like as a trans person, um, and specifically like as a non-binary person, like I just wake up with a different gender every day. And, you know, I can't buy all the clothes to match every gender that I ever have felt, you know, over the course of a year or even the course of a day. Um, but I can buy a lot of things that were like kind of in their amalgamation will be, um, will equal that, if that makes sense, will equal all of those genders. And so that is sort of where I'm at too. So I do feel like some of the, the gender stuff, which of course is always in conversation with race, specifically for folks of color, like that is, that's a big part of this too. No, I hate being a water sign because like whenever something hits, my eyes just get hot. <laughs> I'm just like, fuck, I'm gonna like tear up. Um, but I think your bit about how our first home so often don't really nurture our full selves. And so we really do have a choice whether or not we want to keep nurturing ourselves after we leave the initial home and allowing those shifts to sort of help shift the world and environments around us. Or we kind of don't. And we're sort of like, I'm going to internalize all that and just like harbor a lot of like toxicity and other like internalizations and that's like something that's really deeply touching me right now so thank you for that and yeah thank you for I don't know almost permission and a reminder for all of us that um I love this idea of like when we shift the world shifts and it's like that's either intentionally you know you can shift and like engage in community organizing like yourself or you know I think just like when you present in a certain way and do certain things, you know, whether or not you know it, that can serve as like a portal for someone else and sort of like mm -hmm. imprint onto them. Um, I know it's like a black queer person. Like I remember growing up and like seeing other people who sort of like 
seem sort of legible as far as like being queer and me just being like, oh my God, like I'm a little baby queer now, but like seeing them just feels like such a huge like little wink and like (laughs) one day um, be that too. So thank you for that permission and that reminder. And I just want to like end on one last question really quickly. I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't bring up faith and religion in this conversation. I know that's been a huge part of your life and has um, hugely impacted your work. And Mm. I think faith has a lot of teachings in this moment when it comes to um, learning about discernment, uh, discernment, and learning about how um, useful it is, like lean into prophecy to lean into what isn't quite here yet. Um, so I'm like really interested, and we can end after this. Um, how has faith sort of not only impacted your organizing work, but also just impacted your entire ethos and theory? A change, I guess. I would, yeah. Mm-hmm. How has it impacted those things? Yeah, I mean, there's in so many ways, like all of my uh, foundational moral anything, it all goes back to church. Like it all goes back specifically to the black church. So it's, yeah, it's inextricably tied with who I am, even though I don't identify as Christian anymore, but still like I'm actively still in those spaces um, because I have a lot of power. So let's be honest about that. Um, I will say... Well, I really could go at this so many different ways. I feel like one of the big things, it makes, it makes me think of this Facebook status from like 2014 or 2015. Um, speaking of like inspirational black queer people that you like saw when you weren't quite there, but they like inspired you to get there. Um, there is a woman named Samantha Master who at the time worked in the human rights campaign and I was an intern there. Um, and she was one of a small cadre of black people who, when I was lost in the sauce around like my own blackness, they like woke me the fuck up. God bless. Um, cause I was a lot of labor, but all this to say, she put this Facebook status and she, you know, was, uh, was very, I don't know if she still is, but was deep in BYP hundred and like, was in like all of these like DC based, like black, um, radical organizing spaces. And, um, she did this one Facebook that said, um, Black liberation work is inherently faith-based work because you're working toward a world that you have no reason to believe will exist, but it has to exist. Um, and I like have like, I go back to it. I've like screenshotted it when I first saw it, then I like will screenshot it like once a year, just so it like stays kind of like in the mix of things in, in my thought process, because that's sort of what my relationship to faith is now. Although not every day, right? Like sometimes I do feel that hopelessness and that is a very scary feeling because it's not one that I'm like as intimately familiar with as I was when I was younger. And it's a hopelessness for the world, which is a very different feeling than hopelessness for oneself. But all that to say, more often than not, I do have some level of hope, even if it's cynical. (laughs) And I think that it's like with the church, like with all the stories of just like wild things, right? Like if you just sort of take them out of the context of this very uh, specific space, it's like, what are we actually listening to? Like, this is a wild tale. Like, can you imagine just like, you're having a key and one of your homegirls is like, so let me tell you about what like Jesus and the boys was up to. Like, I feel like you have got to chill. Like you stay alive. You know what I mean? Like, it's just wild. So I think that like having a certain like, audacious things seeming possible that is like something that the black church and that religiosity has like given me i think that like 
uh, infusing song and dance and like just like going up a little bit on your way to like getting to the reason why you're all there, like the strategy, the deep like work, but having a good time, like that feels like super tied to my relationship with the black church. I would say just like bringing any sort of like spiritual conversation into what could otherwise be a very heavily like secular conversation especially in the PNW, which is not a very, um, it's considered like a not super religious place. There just aren't as many folks in church. So, so like what that looks like outside of church, like I don't think has been investigated as much, but like, or outside of a religious community, I don't think has been investigated as much. Maybe people are deeply spiritual, but they're just not in a religious community, don't know. But all that to say, like that's sort of how it's been defined. And yeah, sometimes people will tiptoe around like, whatever spiritual you know sense that they have and i'm like actually that's what we need to bring to the fore like in this conversation where we're experiencing all these emotions where our, our, we're experiencing the weight of our communities and, and like all the the lines of ancestry and all their trauma like we're feeling all of it and like us as just humans like just our, our physical mental you know the classic kind of senses that we rely on is not enough like it has to we kind of have to zoom out of it um, so that we can get grounded, if that makes sense. And so I feel like that is something that I try to bring into the space without like beating people over the head with something or, or even naming it. Because I know, and it's interesting when we actually do get into these conversations, I'm like, you go to church, like you go to like, you know, Ethiopian Orthodox church every week with your family, but you never bring it up in organizing space. Or like, you grew up like hella Catholic and like have a complicated relationship, but it's still, I hear it in the way you literally use words. Like you only would have gotten that from that space, but you don't talk about it here. Or like you grew up and you're like super Buddhist and you're devout, but like it doesn't come in here. Like why, you know? And so I'm like, we need to bring that here. That's not, if those two things are not together, if the sacred and uh, <laughs> my partner's gonna laugh at this, but if the sacred and the profane are not together, then like, we're not gonna get free once again. Like we cannot be disconnected. We must be aligned. And those two things are deeply in alignment. So all that to say, I think that that's sort of where faith comes in for me. And in terms of um, there's also, of course, the material aspects of it. So I alluded to this earlier, but I still choose to, you know, organize in very Christian spaces because when we're talking about land, like who has done the most and the least when it comes to land than the church, capital C, um, around the world. And, you know, we're talking about in, in the work that I do around faith and discernment, you know, helping folks come to a decision rooted and in equity rooted in racial justice and land justice, um, rooted in a mission, a mission aligned way of doing things and what you're striving toward, but ultimately rooted in giving up something, giving up some power for the betterment of your community, the betterment of the congregation and ultimately the betterment of the world. Like all of these things, you know, I'm in that space because I'm like, ultimately I want some of this stuff to go back to my community. Um, or I want my community to have a significant say in what this space becomes and then to become co-stewards of it. And so for all, or for this whole space to be liquidated, like the assets to be liquidated. And then from there, whether it's, you know, however those resources are distributed for it to be distributed back to the people it was taken from in order for the space to have been here for a hundred plus years, right? So all that to say, um, that's another thing for me. Like there is a very concrete material piece of like faith, capital F, and that is also where I find myself in, um, 
it's something that I've all, I've wanted to do for a long time. I think it brings together all the pieces, a lot of like, yeah, a lot of the pieces of me, honestly. Um, and so I'm grateful to be able to do it as sort of as a passion project, but also get paid because hello, we used to live in, you know, under like capitalism. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I would say that, <laughs> okay, like period, <laughs> come on. All this to say, um, yeah, I think that that's a bit of it. And I would say probably the last part is just like, I deeply believe that once, like my friend once told me in the context of speaking about black women, um, black women are so beautiful because um, and at the time I was identifying as a black woman and they were as well. So they said, cause we are uninhibited when we know our power. Um, and I've taken that second, keeping the context of the whole thing in mind, but keeping that last part, like we are uninhibited when we know our power. Cause I just believe that so deeply and the moments where I felt like I'm almost there, like freedom is like right here is like when I've been deeply rooted in my own power, my own ability to make change whatever small way that was or whatever big way that was. And I just feel like if all of us, like especially those of us who've been made to feel disempowered, powerless, like were, were to feel that feeling and then to feel it not just individually, but collectively, that's it. Like that's the world, that's the new world right there. Like we're in it. So yeah, I think that faith is a huge part of that. I just believe so deeply that once we get to that, we get to everything. Oof. we are uninhibited when we know our power that i think is a perfect note to end on e thank you so 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 much for being on Lone listen this has been absolutely incredible thank you so much this was honestly i love like i said i love having combos with you you challenge me like i feel like you're one of the smartest people i've ever met and I just, I'm so grateful. So I'm just so looking forward to whatever this ends up being and all the conversations we can have in the future. Thank you. Thank you again, E, for your generosity of time and wisdom. It's truly an honor to be in conspiracy with you. Before we close out, here's an additional offering from another dear friend, Sarah Placencia, to help us reconnect to our breath a vital starting point for being in conspiracy with ourselves and others. Over the next 10 minutes, we are going to join each other from wherever we may be in breathing together and taking the time to attend to ourselves. And as we breathe independently, recognizing our connectedness in this moment with every inhale and exhale that we take. So to start, let us come to a comfortable seat. Now, this may be sitting on the floor and crossing your feet, or just stay sitting on a chair couch, whatever feels comfortable for you. And once you arrive at your comfortable seat, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. Again, this is optional. More than anything, the next few minutes are about giving yourself 
the space and time that you need. So from wherever you are sitting, bring one hand to rest over your heart and then take your other hand to rest on top of that. Feeling your heart beat beneath your hands. You can also bring your hands to a prayer position at your heart center or hands by your knees with your palms facing the sky, welcoming all that is calling you in this moment. Doing what makes you feel grounded, safe, and closer to yourself. And slowly allow yourself to shift your awareness from a place of doing and going to simply observing. Taking a few more moments to allow yourself to fully arrive. Inhaling through your nose and exhaling through your mouth slowly. Taking a few breaths here at your own pace. And now that we've given ourselves some space to let go of the drive to do and be okay with just being, check in with yourself. Are you okay sitting in this moment? Are you comfortable? What urges are you fighting against? What are we holding on to that no longer serves us? And can we allow ourselves to let go of these attachments to observe how we feel and connect to the sensations that surround us. Now, take this moment to set your intention. This could be an intention for the rest of your day, the last half of your day, or just the next few minutes that we're together. 
And after you have set your intention, think about how you carry your intention with you beyond this moment. What does that look like? And I want you to picture that throughout the next five minutes. So take a few minutes here to get grounded, slow the mind with your breath. And now, keeping your intention in mind, we are going to integrate our breath a little more by inhaling for five seconds through your nose, holding our breath at the top for five seconds, and then exhaling for five seconds through your mouth, trying to slow the breath and the mind. So we're going to inhale for one, two, three, four, five, hold, one, two, three, four, five, exhale, one, two, three, four, five. Again, we're going to inhale one, two, three, four, five, hold one, two, three, four, five, exhale one, two, three, four, five. We're going to take one more just like this. Inhale, one, two, three, four, five. Hold, one, two, three, four, five. Exhale, one, two, three, four, five. Going back to our normal breath, as we near the end of our meditation, taking deep inhales and even deeper exhales, and do this for a few moments on your own, and I want you to imagine that with every inhale, you are filling your body with positive energy. We're getting closer to the substance of who we are. And it's as if 
with every inhale, we are watering the very roots of our existence and nurturing our bodies. And imagine that with every exhale, you are letting go of any fears, letting them slip away and flow out of your body, releasing any negative or limiting beliefs that are buried deep in our subconscious. Now, as you slowly start to bring awareness back to your body, revisit your intention. Open your eyes and take a moment to notice how you feel. Notice where your mind is. Most importantly, thank yourself for taking the time to explore yourself more deeply by simply breathing together. Thank you for letting me be of service to you and I hope you carry this energy throughout your day. Thank you again for listening to Loam Listen. Again, I'm your host, Amiria Freeman, and this episode was edited by Isaac Silk. Until next time.